This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Dell for Entrepreneurs is here to help your business scale faster through technology. Reach out to startups at dell.com for a free IT consultation. From laptops and desktops to servers and cloud, Dell Technologies is there for you. Up today, growing product and engineering orgs from zero to IPO with Nick Caldwell, VP of Engineering at Twitter, and Tomas Tungas, Managing Director at Redpoint Ventures. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tomas Tungas. I'm a Managing Director at Redpoint, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Nick Caldwell, uh, a friend who is currently VP of Engineering at Twitter, and we are going to be talking about uh, growing product and engineering team organizations from zero to IPO. Uh, I'm thrilled that Nick is with us because he's got an incredible background. Nick grew up in Maryland. His first computer was a Tandy 1000. I had a lot of fun researching you, Nick, by the way. Uh, and you set up your own BBS on that machine. Uh, then you went to a magnet school. You uh, rose up to the ranks of MIT and you started working at Microsoft and your first car was a Nissan 350Z. What color was it? Oh, it was silver, man. That was amazing. <laughs> I bought that car before I even got my first paycheck. I'm not lying. Is that true? Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was making bad decisions back then. <laughs> <laughs> then you rose up through the ranks at Microsoft. You started the Power BI team, grew that to 300 people. Then you switched from B2B to B2C, which is rare to see. You became the VPN of Reddit, which is the front page of the internet, and you tripled the engineering team there in 18 months. Then we got to know each other because you became the chief product officer at Looker, which then afterwards became, uh, was acquired by Google. And now you're a VPN to Twitter. So you've seen both B2B and B2C. You've seen incredible scale. You've got a uh, wonderful perspective on all this. And uh, I also learned that you love video games and sneakers on the side. And it's clear you're a Lego <laughs> fanatic from your background too. Oh, yeah. I had a, I had a lot of uh, free time between my current job and the last. So we put the Millennium Falcon together. But thanks for the intro, Tomaz. I, uh, I um, was looking forward to, to this um, fireside chat for quite some time. And I uh, really appreciate you uh, inviting me to the stage here. Now, thrilled to be having the conversation. One of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was when founders are starting companies, the, the first goal is really the establishment of product market fit, making sure that customers actually want uh, the product that uh, you're building. And then afterwards, there's this transition from innovation to execution. So now that you've built the product, you actually want to start scaling the org. You've made that turn several times. Uh, the, the big change that you've written about in the blogs is sales and marketing now starts to influence the product roadmap. What does that mean? What does it feel like in an org? How should you as, as a leader within a startup sort of anticipate and expect, what, what changes should you expect in the org when you make that transition? Yeah, you see a lot of, uh, of companies struggle with, with this. And um, I think that that blog was written in the context of, of Looker, which is a company I, I in part came to help this specific problem. But, you know, early on in your product life cycle, you're, you're obviously in an innovation phase. You're you're in that sort of random walk trying to find product market fit as quickly as possible before uh, your funding <laughs> runs out and you have to get a different job. But hopefully you land on, a, on an idea that resonates with the market and you then switch from this sort of innovative search into kind of, hey, we need to execute on what's working. And the challenge is that the, the sort of tools and processes and even people that you need in that first phase can be different 
well, are very different from the people that you need in that execution and growth phase. So it's a complex problem, but I, I would say, you know, with Looker as an example, Looker was a very, very, very engineering driven uh, company and highly innovative along that dimension as it tried to figure out the right product market fit. And I remember the, the CTO Lloyd, I'm sure you know Lloyd Tab. that guy's amazing. He's amazing. Um, yeah, I, re- I remember uh, on the interview that I had with him, it was interesting because he said two things. Uh, one was that the company was at the time struggling to put together a roadmap and then dot, dot, dot. The other thing I remember him saying was he has a personal ethos that the engineer has the pen. <laughs> so <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered if he ever put those two things together. So one thing that you, you have to think about is how do you bring engineering along into a world where, you know, they, they're going to have a lot of, of say in the day-to-day about the product roadmap to a world where maybe sales and marketing are going to start to have more influence. Because once you have that product market fit, the reality is you, you scale by listening increasingly to your customers, figuring out how to synthesize those roadmaps in a way that provides uh, predictability as you try and scale the organization. So that, that was sort of the challenge that we faced early on there. And that's a pretty big transition, right? From when the engineering, I mean, and when you were talking about Lloyd having the pen, what you mean is that the engineers basically rule all of it, <laughs> right? And and then what ends up happening is sales teams start selling and customer success teams start engaging with different customers and you get all this feedback that comes back from customers and product and engine might have a particular view and sales and marketing have a different view because they're trying to close that big customer and want one particular feature. That's it. I mean, it's, it's a matter of uh, the levers of control shifting a little bit. And uh, it, it's healthy to have this, this tension, I think. Um, but you, you do from a from this dimension of the problem, you, you do have to win over engineers. You, you have to figure out how to empathize with them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how do you I do think, that? Well, at Looker, for, fortunately, we had a really healthy culture to start with. So, you know, before I get into what we did there, it, it always helps to make sure that you're building on top of an environment that's collaborative, open to feedback, et cetera. And walking into Looker, I was uh, extraordinarily fortunate there. I think where we had to make some changes, though, was that the engineering department was not necessarily connected in terms of communication with the go-to-market functions. That is to say that the sales and marketing folks were asking for better roadmaps and more predictability and and this sort of thing. And uh, the dots weren't being connected between the day-to-day operations and engineering and what the go-to-market functions needed. And, um, you know, there's, there's some challenges all around there. I think with engineers, though, the way that you win them over is you have to help them understand that in giving up this sort of day-to-day control, what are they going to get in return, right? Uh, like an engineer's worst nightmare, at least <laughs> when I'm in that capacity, is that like they're being directly told by salespeople what to build every single day and they lose the freedom to innovate. They lose the freedom to go back and address like core technical debt concerns and, and things like that. So in return for giving up some of that freedom, you want to show that now that you've got product market fit and you can scale it, you can have much bigger impact in the world. So what we did uh, at Looker on this dimension was first, the, the company had never really sat down with engineering and in some parts of the product organization well and just expressed the potential that the business had. Like, you know, sit down, let's walk through uh, the Gartner Magic Quadrant or uh, external validation from other sources and just talk about 
the position in the world, the, the time to switch from innovation to execution because we have figured out something that is working. Like engineers have to be brought into the strategy in that way. They can't just be excluded, you know, locked in the basement, throw pizza downstairs and hope the code comes out. <laughs> They've got the to, code, yeah. Yeah, you got you to bring them along. The second thing that we did there, because our, our engineering team had particularly strong opinions about what should go into the product, we started to loop in uh, customers uh, and have them talk at all hands. We also uh, happened to have an NPS database that was, was going unused with, with some great raw feedback. So I started to get the team to synthesize that information and present it directly to the engineering team. And again, this is a providing more signal to engineers about, hey, look, like, here's some other things to consider that you might not have seen. You, know, you weren't seeing all of the, the picture before, so here's some other signal. Uh, and then the, the final thing is, is, as you build your roadmap, you have to, I believe, take into consideration technical debt and concerns from engineering. This is the thing I, I see go wrong at companies of, of every scale, that like the, the balance between tech debt and feature work is something that's always hard to, to get right because you invest in different levels depending on where your company is in the product lifecycle. If you're a brand new company and you really just need to innovate, it's fairly safe to assume that you're going to throw away most of your code. When you are transitioning from that innovation to execution phase, though, you're probably going to keep a little bit of it. And then when you're full on executing and need to maintain, you need to be having a consistent way that you address ongoing uh, technical debt. So here, what I wanted to do with, at Looker was make sure that the, the many projects that, that were kind of uh, in the backlog related to building up uh, the, the technical systems were considered right alongside some of the, the project work. And ideally, like my favorite way to solve this problem is if you can uh, kill two birds with one stone, like design your new product work so that it actually pulls technical improvements along with it. And at Looker, we were able to, to do that in multiple areas. I was really proud of the work the team did in up-leveling almost all of our systems. Um, we went, uh, just to give an example, just to toot the horn there, we went from, um, I want to say on-prem, but a uh, not necessarily cloud-first uh, approach to a fully you know, multi-cloud solution within about a year and a half. And that, that required a lot of new feature work alongside technical debt, you know, security improvements, et cetera. And it was good to see the team rallying around that. It required them understand, understanding the strategy though. So I'll, I'll stop there, Tomas. I, I don't know if no, you no, want to No, it's great. I mean, okay. you know, as you were talking, one of the things I was thinking about is the, the number of startups that I've seen that when they start to get into this transition and the sales team starts banging on the product, the number of times people talk about, hey, we need to pause all product development to fix our technical debt and how big of a strategic bet that is for the company. Can you talk about your perspective on that? I think uh, I, I've heard that in, in many cases. And, you know, sometimes you're in situations where it's like, hey, we've got a burning platform. There's really no way forward unless we do a, a complete rewrite or something like that. I, when I was at Power BI uh, a long time ago, I remember our uh, mobile application was built on uh, <laughs> uh, Windows Mobile. And, you know, hey, we want to be competitive in the market. That's probably not the right way to do it. <laughs> so we had to stop all development, throw that thing out and like just do a complete overall. Like, so there are situations where that can happen, but I, I would claim that it's much better if you can walk and chew gum at the same time. That if you build the right layers of collaboration between uh, what the sales and go-to-market functions want, the PM organization, as well as the engineering team, it is totally possible to, to figure out a balance that allows you to address technical 
debt as you go along. And again, I, I think even going further than that, I, tr- I try to avoid even calling it tech debt where I can. I like to plug it into new feature work and just say, hey, like we're rolling out this new feature. Why don't we along side uh, of rolling out this new feature, think about like whether or not we might use Kubernetes as the, the backing architecture for this, like, and pull through some technical improvements alongside. So it doesn't look, you know, tech debt has this connotation of being drudge work. It doesn't have to be drudge work. It can be work that actually improves the overall product experience. And that's the way I like to think about it. You know, when you're fixing tech debt, you're kind of fixing the foundations of your house. You're, you're, yeah. you're improving the ability to build all products. And, uh, and I, I think that's the way I look at it. It needs to be celebrated more than it traditionally is. That's true. The framing is so important. I mean, there's nothing, I used to be an engineer. There's nothing worse as an engineer being given somebody else's old code and just say, hey, your responsibility <laughs> is to fix and maintain this. It takes all the fun out of the problem solving, you know? Yeah, just, just rewrite this old code. No, <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. It will do exactly the same thing. It'll just work better. No one will notice. <laughs> So I, I think the other thing there is, um, you know, we talked primarily about engineering. I think uh, it goes both ways, though. The uh, go-to-market functions as well have to, to change in that world. I think the, the critical thing there is road mapping. And, um, you know, as you switch from that innovation stage where you don't quite know what you're going to do necessarily from quarter to quarter to a mode where you do understand the go-to-market, uh, the ability to to have roadmaps that are consistent solves so many problems. They're kind of the fundamental unit you need to keep engineering and sales in sync, but they also help with, uh, you know, communicating vision and what to expect uh, to your customers, particularly in the enterprise, I think where, where is where this matters. How did you do that at Looker? I mean, we didn't have a roadmap and then, you know, we, we needed to create a roadmap that's not, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, a roadmap wasn't written in a day either. I want to, before I explain this, give all credit to the team who actually implemented these changes. So Sandra Orozco out there might be listening to this and uh, she's one of the most phenomenal TPMs I've ever worked with. But at Looker, yeah, we, we, when I walked in, uh, we didn't have a, a roadmap. We didn't have what I believe is fundamentally necessary to build a good roadmap, which is tools like Jira that engineering managers and PMs use on an, uh, a day-to-day or week-to-week basis to track the work that is, is going on. Like that is to say, a roadmap comes in two parts. One is like vision. Right? It's easy to build a, a visionary roadmap, right? Like you ever hear like Elon Musk talk about, yeah. you know, landing people on the, the moon four or, sentences for Tesla or, or <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, okay. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Someday we'll get the full self-driving, whatever. But it's easy to talk about the, the long, long-term roadmap. What is more challenging though is like, hey, quarter out. Like, tell me what you're really going to land and can you do it consistently at a, a 90% confidence rate? And in order to do that, you have to have a certain culture of engineering and, and product and you need tools to support that culture. So uh, the tools that we implemented uh, at Looker, uh, again, with the help of, of an entire team, were to bring in uh, Jira as our work management tool to bring in an engineering culture that uh, was heavily weighted toward predictability and quality. I I told the team continually, like, uh, I will give you all the freedom and control in the world as long as you can be, do it predictably. Right. So that sort of culture came into play and then delivering consistently and over communicating our roadmaps uh, to our stakeholder teams so that they could be brought in and not be surprised about what was coming down the pipeline. And um, in order to, to do this, <laughs> 
I sort of put the, the team through a, a bit of a torture chamber. So I, I started in uh, October and we rolled out a small version of this process, JIRA. I gave them a, a whole strategy for, for how to build a whole uh, a process for how to build a, a product strategies called dibs. I stole that from Spotify if you, if you want to look it up. And we ran through a six month product planning cycle in two weeks in October. And I told them, hey, guys, good job on the practice round. We're going to do this one more time. <laughs> so we, we did it back to back. We did two six-month planning processes back to back in order to, to kick off the year. And uh, I got a lot of com complaints and pushback for that. Why are we doing all this unnecessary paperwork and extra bureaucracy? But having done that twice, we landed in the new year with the team just able to execute, understanding the culture we were trying to head toward. And then I was able to kind of pullback. There's nothing better than being in a leadership position where you've, you've just trained everyone else to do all the work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was able to start like pulling back after we got that sort of discipline tooling and, and so forth in place. Okay. So let's keep going with the, with the theme. So, you know, we talked about that transition from product market fit, innovation to execution. You've now gotten the engineering team into a place where they are bought in and excited about involving sales in the product roadmap. You've got a product roadmap. Now you've got to scale out the team. And one of the things that I really liked about your writing is you have strong views on the difference between a manager and a leader. Can you go a bit more into detail about the differences between a manager and a leader? Yeah, I think, um, look, it's not to, by the way, whenever I answer this question, I think people interpret it the wrong way. Look, managers can be leaders. <laughs> and right. and ideally, uh, ideally, you get managers who are leaders. But I also want to contrast that by saying, the expectations for leadership are not quite the same as what you would expect for management. Like with, with managers, and we were just talking about it, what I really want is someone who can take care of their team, take care of the people on the team. Uh, one, that's my high order bit for managers. And then two, they need to be able to execute against a strategy or a roadmap with predictability and quality, right? So management is all about building things and, and, and getting things done and, and ideally a sort of stable, predictable, low risk, you know, fashion, right? Like <laughs> that's what a manager does. Now think about your favorite leader and what they do. You know, pick anyone and, and if they're stable, uh, <laughs> You know, they're, they're probably not doing what most leaders are, are brought in to do. Leaders are often brought in to facilitate change, like to set new directions. Think about the long-term horizon. They use empathy and charm and the heart to inspire people to take on new challenges. So they're really, if anything, you know, we're man we talked about managers being forces of stability and predictability you can think about leaders in, in, in the opposite fashion. You want leaders who are going to come in and inspire people to do something different. And leaders, in order to, to get what they want done, they don't necessarily have to have people reporting into them, right? You think about like managers might have support, subordinates or direct reports, but anyone can be a leader as long as they can get followers, people who believe in their ideas and the vision that they're trying to project. And I, I think that's the, the fundamental difference as I would describe it. And I try and in any organization I build, construct systems that we can go find them. And, uh, and the reason I believe that's so important is because as organizations scale, 
The number of people obviously scales linearly. The number of managers does not scale linearly. It scales uh, logarithmically. So if you're not tapping into every single potential leader in your organization in a systemic way, you're missing out on opportunities to, to find uh, talent, change agents, etc. Nick, thank you. This has been incredible. I've learned a ton about you and uh, really grateful for sharing all of your insights throughout your incredible career. Visit dell.com forward slash Saster for exclusive savings on Dell products and more information about the Dell for Entrepreneurs program. Everything from Dell Financial Services to Dell Rewards, Dell for Entrepreneurs wants to help your business run smarter through technology.